We are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. Hello, everyone. This is Avital. When I say I am all alone, I'm not really all alone because I'm saying something according to a mode of address. I'm already in a world. I'm already vis-a-vis -a, -vis a world according to which I feel alone, but that I presuppose as existing. So when we think of Rousseau or Defoe, who retreated on their islands, we think of Robinson Crusoe, then we have a sense of solitariness that is cut off from everything, and yet to revive a cliche, no man is an island, which is to say that it may be possible that one is never truly all alone, meaning also there's all sorts of command systems with which and by which we talk to ourselves, we review ourselves, we try to improve our lives and ourselves, even in the greatest solitary spin. So last time, I promised that we would consider whether we still have a world, whether we've lost a world, whether we can work with and live with and speak to and be addressed by and summoned and impressed and inspired by a remnant of world? Or do we have to decide together whether or not we can revive the robust notion of world in which we can live and which we can be in? And here I'm referring to Heidegger's sense of in der Welt sein. So what is being in the world? Can we be without being in the world? And where is the in of the world? Are we in the world? Are we out of the world? Are we in a place that um, kind of disjuncts between intimacy and openness or intimacy and politics without knowing whether these are separable? When I speak to you from my extreme confinement, as they say in French, or quarantine, or lockdown, am I alone or am I already saturated, not by your absence, but by the worlds that you bind with me? So if we can practice and perform and think world-binding acts, as Hannah Arendt says we are bound and duty-bound to do, then the question would be, how do we renew our relation to the world? How do we assure a world? Or are we condemned to what Heidegger calls, and Hannah Arendt also uses this term, Weltlosigkeit, so worldlessness. Very often we feel worldless. When Hannah Arendt says that 
we need to do things that are world binding. I've often wondered, does that mean that the world doesn't exist prior to such acts or performances or assurances? Does that contract us to doing things, to creating bonds, signing contracts each time anew in order to assure the existence of a world? Hannah Arendt, as part of her politics and her thinking on friendship and her thinking of how we can survive certain calamities that are politically inflected, has often proposed that we do things or become alert to things or attune ourselves to things that are essentially world-binding. This has led me to wonder what that means, and she does offer ample examples. What does it mean to bind to the world? Does it mean that the world is so fragile that one has to consider renewing our um, links to the world, renewing the world as such? What is the world? Is it something that needs us to perform and act, reassure, recommence. Every morning, do we need to create worlds with one another and try to um, bind ourselves almost in a duty-bound way to produce world together, especially when the world has been shattered by so many incursions, including the technological incursion. Heidegger famously said, and Levinas in different terms, uh, that once the moon was um, kind of hit by a rocket or a technology human-made, it no longer had its poetic, erratic, nearly transcendent qualities. So there are things that break our relations to the world and make us think about the world and also what it means to be without world or worldless, the impoverished, the pained, those suffering, those in relation to illness who feel very, very alone also have an experience of worldlessness that Heidegger bizarrely, but uh, resolutely, attached to animals. He says animals are worldless. They don't have a relation to world. They don't have world. And um, actually, he said that inanimate objects are worldless, but animals are world poor. They're poor in world. They're impoverished. They don't have a relation to world. Rilke might think otherwise and opens up to animals, um, a very large field of world-invested affect and capacity to be in, it, in their own way, maybe even to think. Now, the question about being worldless is um, related to the kind of loss that we're all more or less experiencing. And I don't want to insist on this in a way that might seem like a drag. I just want us to understand that something like world, and it, there is nothing like world, is connected to some of the motifs that we were considering last time, 
which is to say, if you think about the Latin root for world, which is mundus, and this is what Derrida points out, um, it has something to do with what is improper, dirty, filthy, garbage, so that, or in French, immonde, there's something horrifying about the origin of world and its need for a kind of cleanup crew for all sorts of purifiers and and a kind of care for its umwelt or what in german is called it means environment or ambience or surrounding world everything that is has a, a surrounding world has um some um anxiety about about fulfilling its responsibilities to that world and being fulfillable and fuelable by those worlds that are increasingly impoverished. So I just want to start with the, the sense that we do not have a substantial relation to world that we can count on, but this is what creates all sorts of call-outs that have us want to or need to create worlds together and um, be creative in such creations, if possible, and even when not possible, to understand what a world-shattering opening might look like and what kind of art and poetic utterance this invites. Now, one of the points I wanted to urge today was um, a more psychoanalytic one, since we've been laying down different tracks. And very often when I think, I think on at least six registers or six tracks, sometimes I have the image of an ancient film called Ben-Hur when he's riding his chariot in a terrifically invested race. He has six horses that he's trying to manage and control. Very often I feel that that is what um, thinking requires of me. It involves in a drive, and very often I'm driven. There's something about cars and transports that have kind of flooded my rhetoric and ability to think. But that's neither here nor there, so let me stop that track immediately. I want to say that one of the things I thought about considering with you on the track that we've laid down, which is um, psychoanalytic, is how to learn to introject a good object. This may sound like I've just skipped tracks, and um, I know that you're very capable, those of you who are technologically brought up and um, connected. And even those who are less connected to the new technologies, you know that we're able to deal with um, disjunctive sequencing. And thinking has in many ways, ever since Freud, certainly, when some of his ideas like on projection and the cinema and the telephonic scene of analysis, um, a lot of Freud's thoughts um, came out of uh, an understanding of technological mechanicity, 
um, and even unconsciously layered, um, let's say, significations. So I don't want to necessarily talk about technology and thought yet. This is where we're inching up to, and we're also involved in it always to the extent that the podcast is constituted by a technological um, imperative to speak, to speak into an emptiness, to create worlds, to bind yourself through thought and its inevitable frustrations, and to also not necessarily adhere to a strict logic of intelligibility or transparency. And we've discussed hermeneutic frustration in the first session where I um, underscored the fact that I would want to indulge uh, frustration rather than wrap things up or make things overly intelligible or continuous because I feel that that is more loyal to the truthfulness of world and what it requires of us. In other words, rather than to just land a conclusive truth or close the dynamics of a hypothetical way of thinking and tryouts and testing and so on, we're going to open ourselves to disjunction and um, complicated sequencing and mappings that nonetheless approach something like a relation to knowledge without extinguishing non-knowledge and incertitude, which is the, the perhaps the reigning mood of our epoch right now, incertitude and worry. And last time we addressed ourselves to anguish and how anguish, even as it has you toppling and shaking and quaking and wondering about things, anguish is also disclosive. Now, I'm staying with certain frustrating, let's say, dares, because it's, it's, um, it is a challenge to frustrate your audience when you want their approval, you want their understanding, you're trying in some quasi-seductive pedagogical way to, to reach the other, to enthrall the other. But if you resist that, then you're taking the risk of doking the impatience of your audience and having them wonder what the heck you're doing. But I intentionally, to the extent that I have an intention and I'm not a mere transmitter or a series of citations of archives and teachers and friends and conversations and breakups that speak even in their muteness to me, I feel duty bound and world bound to sustain the tensional structure of frustration because I feel that to alleviate frustration in terms of trying to search for meaning and signification with rigor and seriousness of purpose to abandon and suspend the frustrating edges of that inquiry would be 
to pull a fast one would be a dishonesty. It would be to offer totality of world and meaning where there no longer is one, where I don't believe there is one anymore. And I could offer a very lengthy, probing, maybe acceptable demonstration or argument of that contention, but I'm actually going to risk skipping that and hoping you can open a credit account for me and give me credit when I say that um, there is no world and yet we are bound to renew it even in its aliases and morphs and distorted ways of non-appearing or its undead qualities. So to retain frustration, what does that mean? You know that the um, psychoanalyst Winnicott pointed out that children are not often allowed their frustration. Parents really um, mobilize quickly to make sure the child isn't frustrated. That might be a violent mobilization or a caring one, but no matter where it comes from, and a sidebar, by the way, is to consider the increase in violence to children in our states of confinement. Um, it's a really terrible problem, violence to women, violence to anyone who's fragile right now. And I will want us to um, consider that. But right now, I'm trying to hold steady on the thought of the disallowability of frustration. Very often, children are immediately uh, over-comforted, over-solicited, or shut up when they indicate frustration. So we don't have perhaps enough positive experience with frustration, or let's say we're not trained to affirm frustration. And that's why it's not easy to use frustration as the anti-tool, so to speak, to try to probe really difficult, recalcitrant, and um, aggressive fields that we are trying to understand together. So in the mood of frustration, let me just say that we are frustrated. That might be a major mood. And I would love to consider the implications of frustration, non-satisfaction, uh, having your dreams thwarted, your, your wishes denied and all sorts of other levels of rejection of being that you are thrown against. Now, that kind of frustration in a Kafkan world is actually the motor and what makes things possible to the extent that you're not living the dream, so to speak, or fulfilled or fulfillable or allowed an access to some sort of uh, mystified plenitude or pure joy, to the extent that all of that is frustrated, you keep on going. This is one of the structures of desire. 
desire depends on frustrated wishes and hopes and needs. Um, it is based, says Lacan, who thought about Freud a lot and was a great psychoanalyst. I say great in an American way with some irony. I, I assume he was a great psychoanalyst. He was important. He is important, Jacques Lacan. And he um, rooted desire in privation. So unless you're deprived or in pri privation, you and frustrated fundamentally, you're not in the movement and motion and um, imperative and exigency of desire. Desire is what um, calls to you from your, in Lacanian terms, lack. Um, so your, your desire is organized around what you don't have, what you can't give, what you lack, what you're deprived of. And this is something that I wanted to consider with you as, and maybe make it a little easier by telling you that for Lacan, let's say one of the literary providers and suppliers of thought for conveying this kind of movement of desire that's based on lack would be the tradition of the troubadours, those who loved unrequited and those who went through enormous torment and self-torture in order not to achieve their goals and not to close up the wound of desire. So this is a big chunk of thought organized around privation, frustration, restlessness, in order actually to cheer us up and cheer us on, if that's possible, to understand that if one were momentarily fulfilled, and I wish it to everyone to have those moments that are painfully provisional, and maybe not, maybe you know how to um, find contentment and other modalities, more mild modalities of ease with the world, whether or not it's alive and well or shattered and coming back to us from a past that has already um, passed and surpassed us. So let us think of everything that we don't have as an incredible source of energy and movement. Now, the all of this started up as um, my questioning whether we can learn to interject a good object. And there are times when people are depressed and unwell that they have to start from scratch every day and interject a good object, create a good object. By that object in, in Melanie Klein's psychoanalysis, which is very important, she wrote Envy and Gratitude and established how we envy and pollute and destroy worlds without being able to offer gratitude and thankfulness and and be held and holding worlds regardless of their um, promise 
Um, let me just put that to the side. I want to point out that creating a good object is not an easy task. That in itself is frustrating. So the good object is something in Melanie Klein, and she also has a notion that I'd like you to be aware of, of the good breast and the bad breast. So the world, to the extent that we are positing it, offers you a good breast. That means delight, deliciousness, something you can affirm. But even the good breast um, is you have to work at it, and I'll explain that momentarily. But then there's also the bad breast, which is that which poisons, takes away, is malevolent, is a source of tremendous angst and beyond despair kind of um, relinquishment of world. So let's just put that aside. So there are objects, these are symbolic and and if we had time, we would think about the difference between what is imaginary and symbolic, but take my word for it, momentarily at least, that there are things that are what we call, we have a very strong nowadays relationship to the bad breast. It's, it's what we call toxicity, even in our relationships and friendships and um and uh, fields of, of work, we say it's toxic. Now, that is what um, Melanie Klein identified as the bad breast, or sometimes she'll say a bad object. So you can turn something into a bad object. It may not have been a bad object, but you, you create a relation to something that's going to attack and persecute you. Let's just be aware of that. It's very hard to turn a virus into a good object, and there may not be much point to it, though a lot of people are trying to point out certain luminous sparks that they can somehow extract from this um, persecutory um, viral load that's always coming after us. That I leave to the side. I don't think it's a task that we are um, called upon to fulfill. But I want to keep us thinking about how to interject a good world, a good object, with the understanding that even for a child, a baby child, according to Melanie Klein, it's not easy to accept the beatitude or feeding and a lot has to do with a good feed. Can you have a good feed, even in a lecture, in a read, uh, when you're reading, when you're watching a film, when you're talking to someone? Have you been fed? Have you been nurtured? So this is not something that happens automatically because a child first, a baby child again, first has to overcome it's fear and frustration with an, an aggressive and resentful a baby child has to overcome its own aggressivity with regard to the nurturing breast, the good object. So the original stance 
and relatedness is one of resentment, a kind of primordial aggressivity and a destructive bent that has to be overcome in order to accept the goodness of the breast or the good object. So it's a struggle. And this is something that I just wanted to point out that we are probably involved in different levels of creating good objects right now, especially when we are uh, brought to the extreme edge of a frustrating relation to the world, the universe, the cosmos. And here I return to what I was saying about world as starting out as something difficult, filthy, and we can get this, we don't have to necessarily think of the mund or the mundus in, in Latin, uh, but we could think of the cosmos, uh, which we like to use in, in the Anglo-English American languages and language usages. Cosmos is also the root of cosmetics. So if you need cosmetics, if you need to make something pretty or clean and propre or proper and to, to shine forth with propriety, then, and make it your own, your propre in that way, to own it as the beautiful, as a good object, as a good breast, then you in, indulge or you call upon or you make use of cosmetics in order to clean up the cosmos. So I'm trying to say that even in the um, unblemished sense of war, world, not war, but world, I was thinking of the war of the worlds, um, of world, a lot of my work is, is um, organized around war and polemology, polemics, and aggressive uh, kind of demarcations of being. So let me put that to the side. Uh, we are being aggressively handled by all sorts of grids and medicalized situations, militarized kinds of problems that we're facing uh, in lockdown. And as we come out of lockdown, how much policing is taking place and so on. So that floods my mind, even as I'm trying to talk about the cosmos and cosmetics. If you need or make use of cosmetics, it's because you're covering up or you're cleaning up or you're trying to make presentable, even delectable, uh, something that originally isn't seen to be beautiful or good or unpolluted. So even when we use world, and this whole um, discussion has been about the world and losing the world and being frustrated of the world and in the world and wondering where the world is and how to draw it up and bring others into a safety zone that we could at least provisionally recapture as world, 
even if the world were clean and not in need of cosmetics or cleanup or sanitation and sanity right now, we would still have to work at it every day to to make it um, something habitable, desirable, and um, livable. These are all questions that I will get into in, in further um discussions with you. Well, I certainly took us on a whirlwind world um, tour of worldlessness and worlding, as as Heidegger calls it, die Welt weltet, so world welts or worlds. Um, and I would have wanted to provoke more discussion to, to pick up from last week's displacement and place, the relation to place, to your home, to your home base, to what it is to be at home, what you've been discovering about your fundamental homelessness and the homelessness of others, because being in the world also reveals to us that we are essentially being not at home. And that this is something that has to be recreated, rethought, our relation to home, to safety, to all of these terms that the great poet Paul Ceylon made us think about in terms of the unvo, the unware, where you find yourself. Now, that's been a little bit of a heavy dose of fast-tracked, poetic, philosophical reverie and reflection. I want to pull things back together if I can. And next time, roam with you in our shared unwares, where we don't dwell as we dwell, the relation between our aloneness in our home and our homelessness as a basic existential feature without neglecting to consider the plight of those who truly have no home on any level of existence to knock down, renovate, or pin their addresses and names to. Take care, have a safe week, and talk to you next week.